with reporting from around the world. It's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of Eye on Travel. In fact, the last edition for the year 2023. I hope you're having a great time as you're preparing to welcome in 2024, wherever you happen to be. Let me tell you where we happen to be. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 37 degrees, 22 minutes north, 5 degrees, 59 minutes west. We are in Seville, in Spain, at the annual A World for Travel conference right here in this Spanish city. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Peter at PeterGreenberg.com with your name phone number, question or problem, and we will solve it right here on the air. So much to talk about in the news right now before we get into what we're talking about in Seville. Of course, fingers crossed that the weather is going to be somewhat forgiving and we don't have any meltdowns of everybody traveling back from the New Year's festivities, wherever you may happen to be. The good news this year, of course, since uh, both Christmas and New Year's fall on a Monday, uh, people can stagger their departures, they can stagger their returns, they can spread it out over a longer period of time. So even though, if you look at the AAA estimates about the, the number of people traveling by car and by air is higher than it's been in a long time, because it can be spread out over a longer period of time, uh, the system is probably going to be able to handle it with one possible exception, of course, the great intangible of weather. Now, earlier this week, we had some bad fog situations in Chicago, which really hurt operations at Midway. We had the Plain States getting shut down by some winter storms, and we have some storms brewing in the East Coast. But for, for, most, for most of us, it's been a relatively smooth period. When I say relative, you know, when you're dealing with 690 or 700 cancellations or 1,700 delays in a given day, relative to last year at this time, when there were thousands of cancellations and thousands and thousands of delays, um, relatively speaking, we're better off. But why is that happening? Well, it's happening for a couple of reasons. One, the airlines are adjusting their schedules a little bit to be more realistic, and I'll get into that in a second. Second of all, the FAA, remember their staffing problems? Well, they're slowing the flow down of air traffic, especially on the East Coast, out of Florida, and the airlines have no choice but to adjust their schedule. And then as long as the weather holds up, we might actually get to some reasonable, uh, you know, sensible scheduling, which brings me up to an appropriate time to talk about our New Year's resolutions because, hey, in two years, in two days, that's what it's going to be. Now, these are the resolutions you really want to keep. So listen to these because these are the resolutions that if we don't keep them, there may be legislation that will force the airlines and the hotels and the cruise lines and the rental car companies to keep them. Let's start first with a New Year's resolution about Truth in scheduling. I've been yelling and screaming about this for over two years. All of you who make your reservations online, you know, you're motivated by fare, of course, but then you're motivated by how long the flight's going to take, especially if you're connecting flights. But you can't look at it that way. You have to look at how much time is there between those connecting flights. And the airlines are still allowed to publish flights with a 30-minute connect time. This is stupid, ludicrous, suicidal, name it any way you want. You're not going to make your flight. It's going to take you, with every plane being full these days, at least 12 minutes to get off your flight, assuming it's on time, to make that connecting flight. And as we all know, there's a certain rule of travel. The closer connecting time you have, the further that plane is away from you. So if the airlines won't at least give you your New Year's resolution to make one yourself, 
Never schedule a connecting flight with less than a two and a half hour connect time. That's truth in, truth in, in scheduling uh, for our New Year's resolution. Now, there's another one that's, that's actually starting to happen, and you got to give a shout out to the guys at American Airlines for figuring this out. You know, the, 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 the schedulers at the airlines are not just the actual flight schedulers, but it's the ground schedulers that determine what gate you leave from or what gate you arrive to. And they've tended to be very rigid over the years. How many of you have landed only to be told by the pilot, uh, our gate's not available, because that was the gate you were assigned to, and there's a plane there that's just not moving. And there you are sitting, and of course, during that period of time, you miss your connecting flight as well, right? But it's not just you missing your connecting flight. It's your bags missing the connecting flight. It's the crew missing their connecting flight, and the system falls apart. So what is American Airlines doing now? And you know what? How many decades did it take them to figure this one out? Okay, let's not get into that, but at least give them credit for this. They're doing something else when it comes to what happens when your plane lands. So when your plane takes off now, right, this applies to most airlines, they already know when you land at X airport, you're going to gate 47. And that's the gate you got, and that's the gate you're going to keep. Well, Americans are experimenting now with saying the minute you land, then they'll tell you at that moment which gate you're going to go to, which is based on which gate is available. Now, since it takes the airline a minimum of 45 minutes to turn planes around, that means you just got to check your departure boards if you're sitting at the airport to figure out where your flight is going to go going from because they may not post the gate right away. But what that means from an operational point of view is that when a plane lands now, it's not waiting for a gate, baggage is not waiting to be offloaded, and passengers can actually make their connections, and you're going right to a gate, which means you're not burning a lot of fuel, you're not timing out your crew. Now, you may not go to the, the best gate, but you're going to get off the plane. And that's the whole point. Land and get off. So let's hope that experiment works. The other experiment, talk about New Year's resolutions that United is trying, of course, we talked about this before, is how they board the planes, right? They're trying a system now where they're going to board window, middle, and aisle in that order. Well, if that was the only boarding groups they had, I would say it would work. But remember, that's not how they board planes. They board planes based on mileage status, based on military service, based on physical uh, disability, and then like eight different boarding groups, and then you're going to go mi window, middle, and aisle? I don't think it's going to work. But let's hope they come up with some system that does. You know, it would be very easy to, to, to convince people, if the planes could actually carry the amount of carry-on baggage they're supposed to, that the best way to board the plane is from the back to the front, right? Nobody's bunching up the middle, trying to put their bag in the overhead compartment and slowing down the line, right? And then you board first class last, there should be a privilege of that, right? You don't have to jump on the plane and wait. You get to kind of lounge around and then board. But you know what? People don't do that. It's not human nature because what's the subtext here? People realize there's not enough overhead space for their bags, so they want to be on first to jam everything in there that they can, knowing full well that if they can't, their bag may have to be gate-checked, and that defeats the whole purpose going in. So there's another sort of a New Year's resolution we love to do. And then, of course, my last New Year's resolution, which will come as no surprise to anybody, is let's get rid of all the junk fees. It's not just a matter of full disclosure or transparency. They're wrong to begin with. Tell me what I'm going to be paying for my flight. Break it out if you want. But don't tell me that there's this one fare, and then that's just the introductory fare before you lay on everything else that you then tell me is mandatory. It makes no sense. This applies to airlines with additional fees, right? The ultra-low-cost carriers are, are the guilty ones here. I mean, more than anybody else. And it certainly applies to hotels and resorts. 
where the, where some of them are saying that you know the resort fee or the hospitality fee uh, or the destination fee is mandatory. Why? What law says it is? Just because you say it is. Be honest, guys. Tell me what the room's going to cost, and then be competitive on value and not just rate. Those are my New Year's wishes for 2024. And when we come back to Seville, our first guest, I sat down with her before the volcanic eruptions happened, but she has a lot to say. The first lady of Iceland is going to join us, Eliza Reed. Back with more from Seville and a world for travel as Ion Travel returns for the last show of 2023 right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to Ion Travel as we come this week from Seville in Spain at a big conference called The World for Travel, where I'm talking to the leaders of the world in travel about sustainability and the environment and, of course, the opportunities that, exil- that still exist and the challenges that still exist. I'm now joined by uh, someone I've had the pleasure of talking to before who's been on this show before, twice, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. once in uh, Iceland and once on the phone, I believe. That's right. And now here in Seville. Um, if I introduced her to, to you as, as a, um, a Canadian-Icelandic travel writer, that wouldn't really fit the bill, but that's true. <laughs> Um, the author of a book that we talked about on the show the last time we, we spoke called The Secrets of the Spraka. And then her real role here at this conference, and of course, what brings her here, the first lady of the country of Iceland, mm-hmm. Eliza Reid. Thank you. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Happy to be back on the show. This conference, obviously talking about sustainability, how we move forward. Iceland really is almost a, a case history and, and, and a role model at the same time mm-hmm. of how you manage resources in a world of climate change and global warming because mm-hmm. you can see it at your doorstep. Yeah, we really can. And you've been there yourself, Peter. You've yeah. seen how we have 10% of our country is covered in glaciers, which are rapidly receding. So we are really, really close to the effects of climate change right now in Iceland. But for a long time, we've been looking at being a very sustainable society. So for example, our energy needs are almost entirely met with renewables now, all our electricity and our heating and all of that. So we've been- Well, you were blessed with geothermal. We are, we, okay, yeah. We, we do have a bit of an advantage uh, <laughs> and a head start when we're doing things. But I think, you know, society overall is on board with this idea that sustainability and working towards a better planet is gonna benefit all of us. And the tour and tourism industry is incredibly important to us. It's the biggest contributor to our GDP. So we want our visitors as well to have a sustainable experience if you will, right? And that means protecting the natural sites that that our country is known for, all the the waterfalls and the geysers and the hot springs and everything that people to come and see. We want people to come on on roads that are that are safe and that they're not tramping all over the moss and and ruining that. But we also want people to come for cultural reasons and, 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 you know, eat, eat good locally produced food and, and listen to our music and go to our concerts and attend festivals and all of these other things as well. So we've been really thinking for, for many years now about the sustainability, about making sure that people are traveling to different regions of the country, that they're staying for longer periods of time. They're not just trying to tick off a box. Exactly. Exactly. And that they're coming, you know, at different seasons and all of that. So, and, and, you know, 93% of the people who visit the country say they've had a positive experience. So I guess we're doing something right. And the other 7% they haven't found the bodies. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. But I want to go back to something you and I talked about offline, and that is 
the glaciers that are that are melting mm-hmm. or that are going away, mm-hmm. right? You actually have signage posted. Yeah. Yeah, so you can there's a there's a glacier that has disappeared now technically. It's called Oak and there's actually a sign that was written there by one of our our well-known authors who talked about saying, you know, we say that in 200 years maybe all of these glaciers will be gone if we don't look after it and only the future generations know whether we did. But you can also drive up to points where glaciers did extend to, say, in 1950, and then you head a little bit farther inland, and then this was where it stopped in 1970, up to 2000, 2010, 2020, and we still see how much they've been receiving in even in those short few years. So what you're telling me there is a pattern. <laughs> well, indeed, absolutely. But then you say, we don't look after them. How do you look after a glacier? That's all to do with the climate change and the warming climate and how they're melting. So it's all... Uh, interspersed there in terms of our emissions and what we're doing and that's why for example we have all of these uh, renewable energy sources and then we're working towards reducing what does exist there which is uh, non-renewable sources such as the you know air traffic although there's all kinds of technologies going on there we've got amazing carbon capture technologies that we're working on in Iceland right now where you're actually taking out the carbon dioxide from the environment capturing it in our porous lava rock that we have lots of in Iceland too so innovation is really really important there and I'll, you know, tie it back to tourism again, which is so important. And that's when we visit different countries and different cultures and we can talk with each other and share ideas and talk about uh, different innovations and approaches and what we're doing and, and understanding the problems and, and, and seeing it with our own eyes. I mean, first of all, you have the geothermal, right? Mm-hmm. But also you have an opportunity to electrify Yes, yeah, and we've had huge initiatives in in electric car vehicles, for example, and we're working on that. Do you have charging stations? We do. You can actually go, so if you go to visiticeland.com, we have a map there where you can see the charging stations. Are you promoting Iceland right there? (laughs) So on visiticeland.com, you can see the charging stations, and there's a whole sustainable travel page where you can actually go and look and see about different things as a visitor to make your experience more sustainable, which includes uh, taking a pledge to talk about, um, you know, being a responsible tourist, committing to drinking the tap water. Like you'd think it's a small thing, but we have the best tap water in the world. So some would say, some would say, I I absolutely unequivocally say, but I'm a little biased. A little biased. I like New York tap water, but I I like, Uh, come on. Yeah. New York tap water is good. I'm going to give you that. It's it's pretty good. By the way, (laughs) Eliza's originally from Canada and she just said the magic word that will tell everybody she's from Canada. She said about. Did I? (laughs) You never lose the accent, you know? (laughs) Okay. So you have the, you can electrify, you Mm -hmm. have the geothermal that's sort of built in, that's baked in right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, but how do you educate your visitors? Mm-hmm. How do you let them know what's appropriate and inappropriate behavior? Mm-hmm. Well, that's why you have things like this sustainable, this traveler, Icelandic traveler pledge, uh, which has been in operation for a decade now. And when you go to visit... Mother, they do that in Micronesia. Yeah, we'd, another New Zealand, like other country. And, you know, these these ideas, they shouldn't, they shouldn't be patented. You know, we should be sharing these ideas of how to be better travelers the world over. And I think that we as travelers want to be educated we want to treat a country with respect we want to kind of follow the traditions well and leave it in a good in good condition so a lot of that in iceland has to do with um you know uh, not putting yourself in a dangerous position to take these great photos of nature or listening to weather forecasts by the way we did a segment on our show on our television show a couple of years ago which was difficult to actually visualize because it was so disturbing but the name of our show was death by selfie and it's people who decide, hey, I'll pose in front of the oncoming train, yeah. or I'll lean my house, head out the window, or I'll back up two more steps off the cliff yeah. to get that photo. Mm-hmm. I guess the question is, what makes people think that the definition of a great photo has to have them in it? 
Well, that's that's a whole other debate. I think yeah. you're right. That's a, that's another, you know, that's the, the smartphone revolution. But there's also a mentality of people thinking, oh, I'm going away on holiday, nothing can happen to me. You know, it's why people don't get their travel insurance that they should be getting or things because we don't know. And sometimes we're a little more careless or we think, well, that tourist, they're standing near there by the water. That's not going to make a difference. And, and, you know, it should be safe for me despite all the science that say that there's sneaker waves coming up here. And then you realize that actually, you know, that you got to pay attention to, to all of these signs. And, you know, in Iceland, we talk a lot about the weather because we can have pretty unpredictable weather. That's part of the adventure of being in the country. And if you drive on a closed road in a snowstorm that's, you know, had these signs saying, don't do that in your rental car, it's our volunteer search and rescue crew who are going to come and save you. By the way, I'm a, I'm a volunteer fireman in New York, and we're about to establish a rule other fire departments have that if there are posted signs that say, don't do this, mm-hmm. and you do this, mm-hmm. you're paying for the rescue. Mm. There's sometimes a debate. We don't have that at all in Iceland because we want people to call for help if of course, they need help. Of course. Yeah. Gee, how much does it cost them drowning? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> another, but, uh, it's, uh, people got to be aware of that, too, and say, like, you know, we're not joking around if we say there's going to be bad weather. There's going to be bad weather. I will tell you that that the very first time I went to Iceland, um, I helicoptered over, and the helicopter landed, and I put my feet on the ground, and the ground was so hot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, had, I wasn't ready for that at all, but then I realized... That's what you are. I mean, it's probably the country where in, when I moved there 20 years ago and I realized that in Iceland it's probably the only country where you turn on the cold water and you got to kind of let it run for a bit to get really nice cold water <laughs> to, to drink from. By the way, point of history here, you moved there 20 years ago because you met your husband where? At Oxford University in So England. you were from Canada. He was from Iceland. Yeah. You married. Yeah. He became president. Yeah. Yeah, you're first lady. I know. It's a, it's a crazy story, but you never know what's going to happen. The thing I love the most is that you were editing... The Icelandic Air yeah. in-flight magazine. Yes, yes. And, you know, it was great when he ran for president and we were traveling around the country campaigning. And as an immigrant to the country, I was so fortunate. One, I'd learned the language already. So I was, you know, doing all the campaigning in Icelandic as well. And I traveled. Not an easy language. Not an easy language. And I traveled to a lot of those regions as a travel writer and and interviewed a lot of people in the tourism industry and that was really helpful and it's been really helpful for me when I've been able to serve as first lady because it enables me to talk about this country that I love so much um, in an international audience and I feel like you know because I moved there as an adult it kind of entitles me to brag a little bit more because it was less (laughs) (laughs) just being born there randomly. When we come back I want to talk to you a little bit about your role as first lady, which could be considered political on one end, mm-hmm. and also how it intersects with travel and tourism and how you manage that. Mm-hmm. Because it's so much a part, as you say, of your GDP. Mm-hmm. How do you educate your own people there, yeah. the Icelandics uh, people, about exactly what what are the limits mm. of growth? And then how do you manage that growth? Great. And then I also want to talk to you about uh, something that is near and dear to me. Most people don't know this, but I actually visited them about, the, about seven years ago. I went back and saw them again last year. Iceland is now making single malt whiskey. How, oh, oh I, I just got the okay sign from you. <laughs> that's true. But who knew, right? It's all that water. It's our great water. Oh, that's it? Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll discuss that. Okay. <laughs> With Eliza Reed, the first lady of the country of Iceland. When we come back, we'll talk about that. And also, the this, this, uh, this double-edged sword of tourism and environment that still has to be dealt with. We'll be back with more from Seville, Spain, and a world for travel. Peter Greenberg, Eliza Reed, back right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air.
Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. Peter Greenberg here. We are now back at A World for Travel in Seville, Spain. We've been speaking with Eliza Reid, the First Lady of Iceland. Uh, when we just last left off, I was talking about the fact you guys are making single malt whiskey, mm-hmm. which is amazing, mm-hmm. uh, that they could even open a distillery in the middle of a, of a volcanic island. I mean, we've got single malt whiskey, Icelandic gin, Icelandic vodka, amazing Icelandic beer. There's been a whole revolution in the spirits industry in the last 10, 15 years. So basically everybody's drinking. <laughs> well, you know, beer was illegal in the country until 1989, so it's Come all on. a new tradition. And the yeah. reasoning was that? Was that the church? Well, it, it was the reasoning was the government that, you know, if, if something is, as cheap and as common as beer then everybody would be drinking all the time and it would lead to the moral decay of society and when they legalized beer in 1989 and it's still celebrated as a sort of beer day sometimes now that with excessive drinking i'm sure (laughs) well among some sectors but uh you know it's really changed a lot since then but my husband remembers you know growing up for teenagers they you you would buy non-alcoholic beer and put a shot of schnapps in it Oh, Which God. probably tastes Terrible. as it sounds. Yeah, okay, thanks for sharing. Yeah. Uh, but let's move on to that, because yeah. when we talk about politics and travel and tourism, mm. the incident that I remember the most, and you probably do as well, which was completely unanticipated, but it taught the world a lesson, taught the world a lesson about the importance of travel and tourism, was when the volcano erupted in 2010. Mm-hmm. Because that was... Oh, no, it wasn't 2010. Yes, it was. It was 2010, yes, it was. yep. It was 2010, and aviation came to a halt. Yes. And all of a sudden, people who depended on their flowers or heart transplant recipients, I mean, it, it yep. ran the entire yep. spectrum. It was the greatest interruption to air traffic since the Second World War over Europe because of this ash cloud. And, you know, I guess there's a sort of slightly cynical phrase that says all news is good news in in some senses uh over in iceland that volcano was not you know threatening people's lives there was a town that uh had ash effect but you know nobody died or anything from the volcano and we thought well iceland's in the spotlight now this is the moment to remind people and you see it's a lot closer than i thought it was i mean a volcano on this island in the north atlantic has shut down air traffic it can't be that far away and that was really leveraged to put you on the map to put us on the map and the fact that just a couple years before we'd had one of the biggest banking collapses in history oh i remember that yeah so all of a sudden it was more affordable to visit as well because the currency had collapsed and really those two things i mean it was that increase in tourism that actually allowed us to pay back the imf loans that we had to take out after this banking collapse so beware the law of unintended consequences well there you go but you know i remember going there right after the volcano and you guys wasted no time there were coffee mugs, refrigerator magnets yeah. everywhere saying, whoops, we did it again. <laughs> the volcano blowing the lid off. It was unbelievable. That's right. And we've had, you know, the volcanic eruptions in the last few years as well. We are a volcanic island and it happens. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, increase in tourism from people who want to go and see these volcanoes from a safe distance, I um, hasten to add. And, uh, and, and so you never know what you're going to experience when you come to Iceland. As First Lady, what's been your biggest challenge? Ooh, my biggest challenge. The clothing? Is that a, that's not a serious answer? I I don't know. No, elaborate, please. Yeah, well, so, you know, I grew up on a farm just outside of Ottawa in Canada. Met my husband in graduate school, moved to this new country, and and had a bunch of kids and started a business and was doing work. You didn't have a bunch of kids. You had four. I had four kids, yeah. (laughs) And, um, And 
when he became president, it's a very long story, but he'd never run for public office and it happened in a span of about six weeks. So we were really thrust onto the national stage very, very quickly. And so I say seriously, semi-seriously, that all of a sudden we were being photographed everywhere he went and written about. And uh, when you've had four kids in six years and, you know, I basically wore my old maternity pants all the time when I was at home and, and had two pairs of shoes. And, um, you know, it's been something that I, I've thought a lot about over the years because it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to serve in this sort of unofficial role. Um, but it's also very strange, right? Because all of a sudden I'm nationally known as somebody's wife and and not necessarily as me, first of all. And Well, I remember somebody yeah. asked you one day, how do you manage the, the kids? And, and your answer was what? I, I said, well, what did my husband say when he was asked that question? <laughs> Which he had not been asked. <laughs> but then he was asked. But then he was asked, exactly. So, you know, that's just a, a you know a tiny example of, I think, where I, if I can use my voice for something to, to sort of helpfully point things out or just talk about things or just remind people that everybody has a voice that we can be using. You know, in Iceland, my voice has an accent. I'm an immigrant. I've learned a language. About. Uh, about yeah uh, maybe in English my voice has an accent too and you know I think that's important for people to know that immigrants shouldn't just talk about immigrant issues and as a woman who is a spouse that doesn't mean that I just need to talk about quote-unquote spousal issues or whatever it is that people think wives are supposed to talk when about when you look at the history of first ladies that's yeah. exactly what they did well yes and and but I've had the privilege except, of meeting, Ele except Eleanor Roosevelt right <laughs> and that was how many years ago right? a long time and you know I've had the privilege of meeting quite a few spouses now and they're all, of course, very interesting people who've had all these interesting experiences. And I think uh, we all kind of tend to get lumped into a, to a stereotype in some way. So when I became First Lady, I thought, you know, if I have this platform, I'm going to use it to talk about things that are that I feel passionate about. Travel and tourism is, is one of those because I've worked as a journalist and I've worked in the travel industry. And so I thought, why not use my voice to bring attention to that? Gender equality is another issue. You know, even though I have a platform because my husband achieved something, which is pretty ironic... If I have the platform, I'm going to use it. Everybody has a voice. Although I do want to remind you, you said you worked as a journalist. Once a journalist, always a journalist. <laughs> always asking questions, always meeting people. And then I published a book. Okay, so. See, I told you. There it yeah. is. Mm -hmm. And the name of the book is again? Secrets of the Sprakar, Iceland's Extraordinary Women and How They're Changing the World. Sprakar is an Icelandic word that means extraordinary women. So it's all about you know, what we're doing in Iceland. It's really a love letter to Iceland, actually. I think it's like a travel book to Iceland. With well, I am happy today to speak to an extraordinary woman, Eliza Reed, the First Lady of Iceland. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on again. You got it. Back with more from Seville right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg, back with you from Seville, Spain, as we're attending the World for Travel Global Travel Summit on sustainability and all the issues that that represents. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Uh, I think it's quite arguable that the world has been turned upside down. I think it's quite arguable that we're living 
in a world where disruption is part of our daily lives, and it's a question of not whether or not there's going to be disruption, but how we handle it, how we anticipate it, and how we turn it around. And uh, joining me now, especially when it comes to travel, is uh, our good friend. He's a professor of crisis and disaster management. How's that for a title? Uh, at Bournemouth University, Lee Miles. Professor, how are you? Thank you very much, and great to join you. So let's talk about this. You and I could probably fill up this entire show with a list of all the disruptive activities that are happening right now, whether it's pricing, whether it's t- or, or the crazy part, whether there's terrorism, uh, fuel prices, all the intangibles and all the variables that you can't control. Control. Mm. Where do you see us right now as an industry, as the, as the travel industry dealing with this? Well, if I may say, you're in a bit of a schizophrenic spot, I would basically put it this way. I think if you look at after the pandemic, for example, the pandemic, you could say, basically led to the complete reduction in activity. And most of the measures that were put in place lead to a restriction in that activity. And I think one of the lessons that we haven't learned is that part of the recovery for, for tourism and travel has been seen to be the removal of those restrictions again. So in a sense, we haven't learned to live with the We've activity. come full circle. Yeah, we've gone full circle. Quite, and I think that's. You know, I'm going to give you one that that bothers me mm-hmm. in terms of security. Let's go back to post 9/11. You could not board a flight and check a bag unless they could prove that you were on the same flight that your bag was on. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Yeah, correct. Try that today. No problem. They don't even do it. They don't match. They don't positively match bags with passengers. Mm. Does that bother anybody? Well, I think it should bother a lot of people. To put well, that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm saying. Uh, I was checking in at, 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 a, at an airline the other day, and they said to me, well, if it doesn't make this flight, we'll put on another flight. I'm like, wait a second. What happened to the days where if you couldn't match the bag to me, they took the bags off the plane? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think the, the, the main point that comes from that is we've, we, we, we learnt a lot of hard lessons of that pandemic, and we've kind of got to the position where we've lost, started to lose those lessons because of what might you see as a transactional relationship between the travel and tourism sector as part of recovery, the flows, and really the kind of safety, security elements right, of the so balance. Right, so the money is flying back. The money is flying back. And, the, and, the, and all of a sudden the common sense may be flying out. Yeah, exactly. In other words, it seems as transactional. You can either have one or you can have the other element to it. And I think what we have to do is move to a transformative mindset. I think the challenge we've got is we're going to lose most of the institutional memory. All the people that learnt those lessons are not necessarily going to be in those positions for much longer. And therefore we lose the the lessons to be learned from it. Are you saying it's hopeless? No, I'm not saying it's hopeless at all. But what I'm saying is that there are some challenges around that. We're in, a, we're in that spot of there's this schizophrenic relationship in this transactional relationship. So as you do the research here, Professor Miles, I mean, let's, let's break it out. There's hotels, there's airlines, there's cruise ships, there's rental cars, there's public transport, right? You're seeing challenges for each? Yeah, you see it across the sector. I mean, in, in, in nearly all the elements that we, we've talked about. I mean, I have the fortunate position about working in the applied area of, of crisis disaster management. So although I'm a professor, I actually am I'm part of, for, for example, in Africa, immense response to things that go on in Africa. Uh, and you would clearly see that across the sector, then we've actually really moved to a position where during the, during the pandemic, the challenge was that the tra- travel and tourism was seen as being dollars before, dollars for the local economy. And then it became seen as being poss- possibly a source of disease when, the, when, that, when that was taking place. 
And what we've got is a position afterwards is where we really need to debalance those. Power and disease. Yeah, power and <laughs> disease. And the problem with that is that we haven't really moved beyond that. So I think there's a real challenge that we could be moving backwards. More dollars, but less safety of and course, more insecurity. More dollars, maybe less safety, unless, and or I should say until, something bad happens. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Although the interesting factor is that I think our time windows are also. So we faced a continual element throughout 2023 of different types of crisis every few weeks. Does the travel and tourism sector really reflect those those major elements as it moves forward? Probably not. It moves from one, let's say, image to the next. And I think there's a challenge within that. Well, I think you're being nice and polite by saying the challenge. I'm calling it a problem. Well... Well, I'll put it like this. One man's problem is another man's challenge. Or more accurately, it's, it's everybody's global solution. That's what needs or to be required. Or one man's problem is another man's opportunity if it's not managed properly. Correct. Or should we say persons in all of this, I should say. Yes. Yeah. Oh, let's be, let's be politically <laughs> correct. Well, you started it. Uh, but let's, let's, let's kind of dig a little deeper here. What advice are you giving the travel industry then about what they need to do beyond just, okay, guys, you have a problem, you have to solve it. What are the solutions that you're thinking about? I want, you, I want you to talk about that when we come back. We're talking to Professor Lee Miles, the professor, I love this title, of Crisis and Disaster Management. I want to graduate that course uh, at Bournemouth University. We'll be back with more from Seville in Spain from the World for Travel Global Travel Summit on sustainability right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Eye on Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg here back with you in Seville at the World for Travel Global Travel Summit on sustainable travel and of course all the as ancillary aspects of that. We've been talking to Professor Lee Miles, the Professor of Crisis and Disaster Management at Bournemouth University. I mean, is there an airline that's actually doing something right? Is there a hotel that's doing something right? You're, well, there are pockets actually where there are a real say, uh, let's say, beacons of hope. Let's put it like that. Particularly one of those is, for example, uh, an airline, a Latin airline. That oh, actually, down, in, down in South America. Yeah, yeah, they've actually done quite a a lot of work in terms of different types of schemes that have been very important in beyond the normal corporate social responsibility. Give me an example. Yeah, it's one of those examples is, for example, the recycling, for example, of their uniforms, for example, and being able to use those for local communities. That was something that was picked up recently. Another example is, is free routes and free usage of their airlines for, for as part of the COVID dissemination of medical activities. These are all spots, but they develop them as schemes. And I think that's an important point because in instance, we have a lot of corporate social responsibility where a lot of that is kind of flagging of different types of, of images but I think here you have a relatively small operation doing a lot of good work and setting a lot of, uh, of beacons of, of where the practice can be can be useful. And then in terms of coming up with a new definition of sustainability because that's really what we're talking about here it's not just terrorism and bombs on planes yeah. you're always going to have this battle an internal battle whether it's a hotel an airline a cruise ship even a rental car company between doing the right thing and spending the money to get there. 
And I, my understanding, I should also say my experience has been the accountants seem to be winning this battle. I think, like I put it more strongly than that, if, if sustainability is to mean anything in practice, as we know, it needs to be embedded as business as usual. We probably need to move from the notion of sustainable management to what you might call responsible management with sustainability. That's, I think, ah, the important okay. point. In the sense that, to some extent, the sustainability is a word and having incentive schemes to achieve it. If we truly get it, we shouldn't really need them. They should be part of the business model. Right. We are a long way from that we're in the darkness as I alluded to from that where where do we need to get to to achieve some of that well part of that will be to have these kind of big schemes one of the aspects is also of course about training exercising and really assimilation work so well, okay let's get into that because yeah. to be honest there are staffing issues across the board you don't have enough people to do it yeah well I think in most of the travel and tourism sector it's also the fact that most of your most of your sector is trained to be good marketeers and actually how they gauge the gauge the if you like the revival of the sector would be in terms of trade flows, numbers on seats, numbers in, in accommodation, all of those kind of elements. For, my, for myself as a crisis and disaster management, that doesn't mean you're better prepared for disasters. So one of the major aspects is, of course, to train people effectively so your marketers and your, and your usual units for travel and tourism become crisis managers themselves. That's the first element because that's the point where you need to get to. The second is sustainability needs to be built in as a process and endemic within it. That's more corporate, but we need best examples of that across the sector. I've often said the, the one time that you realize, the public realizes the strength, the power, and the importance of travel and tourism is when there is a terrible accident or a terrible development. Yeah. I go back to the Icelandic volcano in 2010 that shut down air traffic for five days. And we were seeing banks and corporations in far-flung countries of the world on the verge of insolvency. Uh-huh. We're, we're seeing businesses on, on the banks of liquidation only because they they couldn't get airlift for five days. People forget it's it's a precious commodity. Well, I think I think that's a valuable point. I think there's there's two separate points within that. The first important point is that whenever you have a crisis or a disaster, particularly a natural disaster, you make people unemployed overnight, and it's not unforgotten that basically lots of businesses lose their ability to activity, and that affects the travel and tourism sector. And the important element of that is that those activities don't necessarily always come back, so it can be a lost market, full stop. Absolutely. Uh, and the the second element, which comes very strongly from that, is that often the travel and tourists are basically the first people to be airlifted out and most plans assume that they should be late they should be gone and it leaves it to the local community to, to, to rough it out and get them to return the challenge of course is that how do you build that story how do you build that good news story that what you do with the travel and tourists is not simply but just to get rid in, of a problem in a world of viral information it's not about how do you build the story how do you make sure it's true well I think that's a, a, an important point because we often used to talk about the golden hour or the golden minute we're probably talking about the golden 10 seconds because the guys on the plane that might be you know suffering the air crash Right. Are the first to take the WhatsApp pictures and have the, and upload them onto whichever social media platform it may be. Of course, taking it all the way to the present, the current situation in the Middle East, Israel and Gaza, it's not just an incident that affects tourism to Israel. It affects tourism and, and the economy on a global scale. From an American point of view, we see this. We've seen this happen so many times, where there's a terrible event that happens somewhere in the world, and Americans just stop traveling. Oh, I'll just stay home now, yeah. right? So you're seeing you're seeing fourth quarter bookings sort of flatline. You're seeing airfares drop precipitously. You're seeing airlines with planes that have been empty, or not empty, but emptier for the first time in two years. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, how do you manage that? Because that's a financial disaster. It is a crisis. And how do you get people back in the air? It's no different than what happened after the fires in Maui, right? Everybody thought, oh, you can't go to Hawaii. 
You know, you can go to Hawaii, you just can't go to West Maui. So these are some of the challenges you're facing. Correct. And I think it goes wider than that. I mean, a good example was, of course, Ebola in, in West Africa, where it only affected certain countries in big nations, but actually it led to a whole collapse of the sector full stop. Right. I think the main aspect really is that you need very clear comms in relation to that and really good good news stories that you can build as quickly as possible so you can build the sector. A good example is after the Nepalese earthquake some time ago, the, it was argued that, for example, this would lead to the collapse of Nepalese t- travel and tourism. What it led to is huge growth this in adventure tourism tourism itself because it became a more risky place for certain types of people to go well actually speaking of risky places to go for those people who understand nepalese history it wasn't the earthquake it was don't get invited to the royal family's house for dinner Google that, everybody, and you'll find out what happened at dinner one night, right? Something to be noted. Something to be definitely noted. Professor Lee Miles, thanks again for joining us. And that music means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody. We've got a whole lot more coming as Ion Travel continues from Seville, Spain, right after this. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here, back with you as Ion Travel continues. If you're just joining the show, let me tell you where we're broadcasting from. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 37 degrees, 20 minutes north, 5 degrees, 59 minutes west. We are in Seville, Spain, attending the A World for Travel Forum and Global Summit on Travel and Sustainability. Of course, you can always reach me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. And since we're, we're talking about sustainability, how perfect to have my next guest on, Philip Hallinan, who is the big cheese at Wyndham Hotels in terms of sourcing and sustainability. Welcome, Philip. Thank you, Peter. So here, I got tons of stuff to ask you because, you know, in the wake of the pandemic, a lot of things changed in terms of sourcing for hotels, dealing with the health protocol. Not necessarily sustainability. That came in later. Um, And I understand why hotels did certain things, like putting dispensers in the shower as opposed to individual bottles, which, by the way, I should tell you, I'm an individual bottle junkie, and I used to collect them. um, And uh, now I feel so abandoned, I know. But but in some hotels, when they put those dispensers in, they, they look like a bad college dormitory gym. And the other ones got, got pretty inventive with it. But that was just one of the changes that happened during the pandemic. So it wasn't just the, the COVID aspects of it. It was sustainability too then. Correct, yeah. So give me an example. I mean, you know, we could go down the list of where hotels have been before, um, you know, in the last two or three years, you know, with the single-use plastics, um, the famous washing the towels, right? I mean, I will tell you, Phil, I used to joke that I'd go into a hotel and there'd be a, a thing on my bed saying, please help us to save the environment by not washing your towels. And the thing was in plastic. Mm-hmm. I'm like, excuse me? Yep. yep. Um, so you had some credibility issues there as an industry. Yes. Right? So what have you done to change that? So th- these are all really good points. And I think the pandemic, certainly for, for us as an industry, was really a focal point. It was an ability for us, well, uh, through, through a really terrible situation, I think it was Churchill that said, um, never let a good disaster go to waste. With so many hotels closed and with so many properties um, unable to operate normally, it gave a real opportunity for us to have a look at the way operations were going. 
and sit down quietly and evaluate where could we actually change things and make an improvement for the better. There are, of course, the kind of plastic elimination programs. Um, I, I, I get where you're coming from as a, a single uh, a, a miniature bottle junkie. Um, but, but, but I understand that. Yeah, of course. And they're becoming more and more sophisticated. And in, in fact, uh, the, the health element of that was another key reason why we were able to relaunch our program in the EMEA region and get the kind of level of traction we're getting. EMEA, of course, means Europe, Middle East, and Africa. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, we had this time to be able to sit down, evaluate what we were doing. We started, obviously, with the cleaning protocols, but it was a great opportunity for us to work with some of our key cleaning partners, such as Ecolab, and say to them, when we redesign our programs and when we put our new collaborations in place, we want to have chemicals and cleaning solutions that are going to be the most environmentally friendly. So we're not going to be putting awful chemicals down into the water. And, you know, in the old days, forget the water. How about the smell in the room? Well, precisely. In the old days, I could tell right away if they were using toxic cleaning fluids in the room. Uh, yeah. You, you could not escape it. Yeah, precisely. And, in fact, you may remember these stories that over the last two years in the Caribbean. You know, these are, these are chemicals that are delivered to the hotels in concentrated form mm. and have to be diluted by the cleaning staff. And if they don't dilute them and they, over, and they overdose the carpet, for example, people can die. Hundred oh, percent. I mean, it, it's uh, it, you need to uh, ensure that you use the products properly. But this was this was again part of what we were looking at: is can we simplify the program? Can we uh, make sure that the dilutions that we're using are using formulations and the latest innovation in those kind of products to make them less aggressive uh, but still just as effective? So your shopping list for solutions and and sourcing for cleaning materials for deodorants for everything. Does it have a sustainability mandate? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, we, we partner with one supplier globally, Ecolab, and we're in the process of uh, working out a much more sustainable program with them. We do not want to be using chemicals uh, that are damaging to the environment, damaging to water tables, and of course damaging to guests and the people who have to use them. So for me, that's absolutely critical. There are challenges. As we say, Europe, Middle East, Eurasia, Africa is a very big region and different countries have different regulations. There's supply chain issues. But broadly speaking, the, the element that's running through everything that we're doing with our uh, partner there is that it has to be sustainable. All right, so how many containers are still plastic? How, many, a, how a, many shampoo containers are still plastic? That's a very good question. Well, when you move from an, uh, an individual uh, to a dispenser, obviously that is still plastic, but it's taking away that single-use element of it. It has a lot more uh, life within it, so that you, for your one small miniature in the big bottle, you're getting 10 of those, so you're using the same unit uh, a lot more times. People are also using less, so there's less wastage of the actual product. How many times do you use just one little bit of the product and then uh, throw the rest of it away? So there's less wastage there. There's a really interesting conundrum here as well, though. It's, do you use recycled plastic for these bottles or do you use virgin plastics? And then the other one is, do you use refillables? You know, you so, just made me laugh. It's almost like an oxymoron. Virgin plastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, by, by which I mean plastic that's never been used before. I know, I yeah, know. exactly. Um, but um, That's like saying organic plastic. Organic plastic, yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, we, you have to think carefully whether you're going to do that. And of course, cost is an element. So if you use recycled plastics, because of the processing that's been involved, there is a higher cost to those. Uh, so you need to always balance the commercial side with the sustainable commerciality side as well. 
But we've thrown the challenge back to the industry and said, can you provide us with a solution that is completely circular? Because we always talk about sustainability, but we don't talk about circularity. And for me, a solution where we have an appointed provider of this, uh, these products who in the price that you pay will also collect all of the empties on the other end, either sanitize them and refill them or do the recycling for you. Well, there's been a program in place for many, many years at many hotels because, okay, I'll stay at a hotel for two or three days, right? There's a big bar of soap in there. I'm not going to consume the entire bar, bar of soap and Correct. most people yeah. wouldn't, yeah. right? So now I check out of the hotel and there's a half a bar of soap there. In the old days, they just throw it out. Yeah. Now they're doing something else. Yeah, um, I know our friends at Hilton have a, a program with Clean the World doing exactly that, which is taking the soap back. Uh, and then that gets recycled, either re, uh, recycled into pellets and made into new bars or distributed uh, to a user who will be uh, uh, who could use it till it's all, all used up. But you're not doing that yet? No, we're in conversations with Clean the World uh, in North America and within this region as well. We're just trying to work our way through it to make it a, a viable solution for our franchisees. What's your biggest challenge now? My biggest challenge now is data. Um, and I, I, I hate to be that boring guy who always goes back to math, but data is really, really important. And the best way that we can help our franchisees minimize their carbon footprint is work with them to give us all of their information about their utility consumption on a monthly basis. We need 12 months of that consistent data so that we can do a baseline. And then from that, we can analyze that, give them... Uh, a snapshot of what their property is looking like from a, a, a carbon footprint and then work with our existing Wyndham Green program to help them uh, reduce their footprint. Phil Hallin, the big cheese at Wyndham in terms of sustainability. Did you like that? I do like cheese. <laughs> and on that happy note, we'll be right back as Ion Travel continues from Seville in Spain right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. And welcome back. Peter Greenberg here with you from A World for Travel in Seville in Spain. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. And as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website with a comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard and essential work all around the world. Opportunities for you in many cases to get up close and personal and help the people who need it the most every time and just about everywhere you travel. We always like to to localize those opportunities, and Seville is no exception. La Candela Sanctuary. It's been around just for about 13 years. It's a nonprofit organization that helps with the rescue and rehabilitation of animals in need. We always love the work that they do. You can volunteer in so many different ways in terms of caring for the dogs, working at the facilities, and more. If you want more information, that's easy. It's sanctuariolacandela.com, or get right to our website, petergreenberg.com, for the comprehensive list on a global scale. You know, here we are at the end of the year. Who better to come on the show and talk about where we are, where we've been, and where we might be going than our good pal Patrick Smith, airline pilot and author and founder of AskThePilot.com. Hello, Patrick. I like your thinking, Peter. <laughs> okay, well, you got it. So, I mean, let's talk about what we've been, you know, topic A for, for all of 2023, and for that matter, for most of 2022, was pilot shortage, air traffic control shortage, 
uh, for that matter, TSA shortage. Uh, and the real question is, are we still where we were? Because we're seeing some interesting developments, right? The, the, the U.S. Department of Transportation has announced that they've hired 1,600 controllers, but you and I both know that's not a learn-while-you-earn process. They're not going to be sitting at the console anytime soon. There's a long learning curve there before they'll ever be allowed to sit there and work planes by themselves. But it's, it's a good sign. But you're still dealing with, what, three different air traffic control centers in the U.S. that are below the 85% staffing threshold. And you, that's the one job you don't want anybody working overtime, right? Sure. And, you know, how and why we got into this situation is uh, maybe a separate conversation. But here we are, so we have to deal with it. And I think the ATC staffing shortage falls under the greater umbrella of the everything shortage that, that we seem to still be dealing with. Um, though I think, I think we've come a long way since uh, the beginning of the year. Um, I think you had me on and we talked about how uh, at the time, the airlines were in a state of just kind of total dysfunction. Um, it, it, it wasn't pretty. And we talked about uh, if and how things would improve over the course of the year. And, and I think they have. Uh, we just went through a Thanksgiving period without any major disruptions or incidents. Um, you know, things aren't as smooth as they could and should be, but uh, we're making progress. You know, I, I give the airlines and the airports and the, and the federal agencies a pretty strong B plus for what happened over Thanksgiving. Um, and thankfully weather did not weigh in too badly. It's always the intangible, but overall the TSA actually properly staffed at the proper times to handle the flow of a record number of travelers going through those security checkpoints. Uh, the airlines, you know, had remarkably few relatively speaking delays and cancellations. And uh, for the most part, people got to where they needed to go. Was it stressful? Of course, but it always is over Thanksgiving. Um, but you got to give them a B plus. That doesn't mean, though, that the systems are in place to not repeat what happened with the Southwest meltdown last year or other things. But at least you can give them a B plus for what they did over Thanksgiving. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, it, it was encouraging. We'll see how Christmas works out, and then uh, going into the the part of the new year um, remains to be seen. Um, I think of all the kind of uh, Worry points. It's, it's the air traffic control situation that uh, is maybe the most urgent and, uh, you know, has the most on the line. Well, you, so yeah, you, um, may, you may remember, Patrick, that earlier in the year, uh, the, the U.S. DOT and the FAA appealed to the airlines to voluntarily cut back 10% of their flight frequencies along the Northeast Corridor because they just couldn't handle it. And the airlines complied, but that's not a good sign. No, it's not. And I think I read recently that... Uh, 80% or close to 80% of ATC facilities nationwide are understaffed. Um, you know, how did this happen? Is, is You throw up your hands and, and you say that, but the, the, the fact is we have to deal with it. Um, and it is it is an ongoing concern. Um, there's, a, there's an awareness, I think, now uh, among pilots and, and controllers themselves uh, that I think is, is, is helpful from a safety standpoint. Um, everybody is just a little nervous and a little, uh, and they're very, very, very conscious of what's going on. So as not to screw something up because there have been, as we know, uh, some near misses over the past months. Um, but, uh, you know, again, uh, the, the government is, you know, realizes there's a problem and is trying to get more controllers back through the pipeline. But as you pointed out, that's going to take some time. There's a lag period. 
You're right. And of course, when we talk about near misses, what they really should be called is near hits. Um, and the ones that I've seen uh, that the FAA has actually acknowledged is about 47, which is way above what was reported in 2022. And of course, the FAA immediately has, you know, started a task force within the industry to find out how could this happen? Well, you know what? I can tell them. And so can you. Um, you know, you've got, and we're not just talking about near hits in the air. We're talking about near hits on the ground. Um, you know, your airports are congested. You, your scheduling is ridiculous. So you, you have planes that can't even cross runways to get to gates. Uh, and if they get to the gate, the gate's not available. Uh, and it's just congestion on the ramp. That's just on the ground. And then in the air, I mean, look, you're a pilot. You know this better than anybody. There's not a runway in the world that can accommodate more than 23 takeoffs in any given hour, given proper separation. So why are the airlines allowed to, to, to schedule 40 departures at 8 o'clock in the morning? Um, right, and, it, and it's especially um, an issue here in, in the Northeast, where I am, where you have all the New York airports, um, Boston, Philadelphia, uh, Newark. Uh, there's, there's so much traffic here, and airlines continue to, to, to add more and more flights to their schedules. There are new low-cost carriers popping up, dumping more flights into the system. It's, it's frankly a little bit out of control. Um, so I think it was last year the FAA basically ordered carriers to, to trim their schedules uh, into certain airports, I think LaGuardia, maybe JFK. And so we haven't had the, the really atrocious delays and congestion that we normally have. But overall, uh, system-wide, uh, you know, there certainly is a problem with overscheduling. I know. And then the real question is, what's the solution? Do you do a lottery where you say, okay, American Airlines, you have a 903 departure. We don't care where you fly or what airplane you use, but you have a gate, you can leave it at 903. Now, if you're late, you go in the penalty box. You don't get a chance to stay in line, you lose the slot. And Delta, you have 907, and United, you have 911. And in the 10 o'clock hour, you switch it around, and you give United the first departure. I mean, are we going to get to that, do you think? Yeah, I don't know. And this is something we've talked about before. Um, yeah, part of the problem is the way carriers have outsourced so much of their operation to regional airlines and have fragmented markets where instead of having uh, five departures a day using bigger planes, you have 10 using smaller planes. Uh, it's not an efficient use of, of ground space or airspace, and that's, that's part of what's led to the problem. I think if the industry got smart, they would begin consolidating fewer departures using bigger planes, and the system would be more reliable overall. Of course, if you have bigger planes, you have to have qualified pilots. And here we go again. Um, it's, it's going to be an interesting situation to see what, what evolves, but it's not a one-dimensional problem, and it's certainly not a one-dimensional solution. Airports have to weigh in in terms of their own capacity issues. Uh, air traffic control has to weigh in in terms of their capacity issues. And the airlines themselves have to become more honest in terms of their scheduling issues, because you can't schedule to be competitive. You have to schedule to be realistic. And right now, I would be the first one to argue that their schedules are just not realistic. Well, I think they need to schedule to be reliable, dependable. And that gets to what I was saying about fewer departures, maybe using larger aircraft. Um, you'd have a, a more streamlined system with fewer delays. Exactly. Now, you, you also brought up a, a, an interesting point about outsourcing, because just because the airplane says American on the tail uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's being operated by American. 
Uh, just because you may get your frequent flyer miles from American by flying that plane doesn't mean it was operated by American. And there's a lot of confusion to this day about code sharing um, of flights. I was at the airport recently. I actually took out my cell phone and took a picture of one flight that had nine different flight numbers. Nine <laughs> on nine different airlines. And, and many of those airlines operating from different terminals within the same airport. It's, it's confusion on parade still. Yeah. Um, Peter, what are the two worst things that happened to air travel in the last 50 years? I would say uh, TSA and the regional jet. Um, <laughs> well, hold on, well, hold on to that thought, Patrick. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about that and then also talk about mental health in the air, too, about one particular incident that happened earlier this year. We're talking to Patrick Smith, airline pilot, author, and founder of AskThePilot.com, one of the all-time good guys. We'll be back with more from Seville right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at Peter at PeterGreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to PeterGreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. Peter Greenberg here, back with you as Ion Travel continues from Seville in Spain and the World for Travel conference going on right here. We've been joined by Patrick Smith, airline pilot, author, and founder of AskThePilot.com and one of our regulars on the show. Earlier this year, Patrick, you know, you, you, uh, we, we saw something that was a bizarre incident. It could have gotten really bad uh, where a pilot from a, 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 an airline was given the courtesy of a jump seat on a, on a regularly scheduled flight um, going uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And for reasons that are now being debated in court, of course, uh, sometime during the flight, and he's a pilot sitting in the jump seat, he leans forward and tries to hit uh, the, the fire control bottles to shut down both engines. Uh, luckily for everybody on board, uh, the, the two pilots in the cockpit were able to stop him, subdue him, and throw him out of the cockpit. Uh, and then, of course, when the plane landed, he was met by authorities and, and then later claimed uh, he was having a reaction to taking mushrooms. Yikes. Now, as a pilot, you know this, and I know this. There's something that's a longstanding courtesy uh, within the airline business that if you're, a, if you're a deadheading pilot or you're flying to another location as a commuter, uh, you may be given the courtesy of the jump seat at the pilot's discretion, at the airline's discretion, as long as you show proper identification. Uh, what's going on? Yeah, what a strange story, and uh, frankly, an embarrassing one for the industry, uh, for pilots. Um, uh, it, 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 it touched off a bigger, a big conversation uh, media-wide about the issue of pilots and mental health. Um, it came to light after the incident that this individual had been dealing with uh, depression or, or mental health issues of one sort or another for a long time. Um, you know, whether you can blame what happened on him using illegal drugs or him being depressed, it kind of depends how you parse it. Um, but it did segue into uh, the bigger discussion about pilots and mental health. And, you know, the... I mean, ultimately, pilots are just like anybody else, and, and occasionally 
have to deal with mental health issues just like like anybody in any profession, including professions that have lives on the line. You know, you it, know, Patrick. Um, you know, I I, 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 I just have a, ahead, a, a quick comment for you. And my and my dad told me this because my dad was a doctor and a pioneer researcher and 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 professional in alcoholism and drug abuse. And what he said to me is what what, what America had never come to grips with, and maybe we still haven't, is that if six percent of the American public has an alcohol problem or they're alcoholics, or six percent of the American public has a drug abuse problem, or six percent of the American public is is uh, pre-suicidal. That means 6% of truck drivers have an alcohol problem and 6% of school teachers have an alcohol problem. And that also means that 6% of pilots also have an alcohol problem. I mean, it's not confined to any one particular job category. Well, maybe. Um, anyway, people uh, don't like to hear the words pilot and mental health in the same sentence, I guess, for obvious reasons. Um, but uh, it, it's also true that this incident notwithstanding, um, a pilot in need of mental health assistance is not, by definition, a dangerous or unsafe pilot. And I think that's the, mis the mistake people make is extrapolating and, and assuming the idea that a pilot who, say, is dealing with depression is therefore ready to crash the plane into the Alps and kill everybody. Um, as did happen, you might remember in the German Wings yes. incident a few years back. Um, but know, we but, do have yes, a but few that, of these but, outlier, these are outlier incidents. They are. Go ahead. But I was going to say, in that particular case, he was already under the care of a psychiatrist who had recommended strongly to the airline that he not be allowed to to perform his duties, and nobody paid attention. That was a scary one because it's one thing to say I have a problem which is a pretty good admission. We love that for anybody. It's another thing to seek treatment, which we always recommend, which is also great. But if in the treatment process, the, 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 the decision is made, you're not ready to go back in the cockpit. Somebody has to take control and make sure that happens. Yeah, the, the German Wings incident was a failure of the system. There's no way around that. Um, but it was also highly unusual, uh, like we said a minute ago, an outlier incident. Um, in the meantime, you know, there are pilots out there who need help with things. That doesn't make them unsafe or right. dangerous. I agree. Um, but there is a stigma, and so pilots aren't necessarily eager to disclose this information when it comes to medical certification and whatnot. So the, that's a problem that the FAA needs to work with and work on. And, and to their credit, they are. They've established a committee to streamline the application process and, and medication approvals and, and so on and so forth for pilots who need help. And by the way, this is the same issue that we dealt with years ago with the FAA finally creating a system where pilots could self-report safety violations without yeah. fear of losing their jobs. And airlines, too, have become a lot more proactive and, and, and upfront about encouraging employees to to deal with, with things they need to deal with without fear of repercussion. And I think that's a good idea because it keeps the problem from being driven underground. I agree. Patrick Smith, airline pilot, author and founder of AskThePilot.com. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. And of course, since this is our last show of the year, I want to wish you a very happy holiday. And here's to a happier new year all around and a safer new year and uh, a more stress-free new year. Patrick, thanks again. Anytime, Peter. Thank you. You got it. And when we come back from Seville, we're taking a little diversion to Estonia. Back with more of Ion Travel 
right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg here, back with you in Seville, Spain, for the A World for Travel Summit, featuring many world leaders, heads of state, ministers of tourism, and other thought leaders in the world of sustainable travel. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Earlier in the show, we spoke with the First Lady of Iceland, uh, who is, is amazing, as many of you have heard, and has a lot to say about the environment. And my next guest, probably similarly so, because she comes from a country that, if she'll allow me to say this, is small enough to be managed. It's small enough to be actually taken care of. It's not just sprawling. And that country is Estonia. She's the head of tourism. Kuli Kroner, how are you? Oh, thank you. I'm fine. So if you look at the sheer numbers of Estonia, I mean, let's give everybody a sense of place. Where is Estonia located? Well, Estonia is a Nordic country in Europe, uh, neighbored by Finland, Sweden, Latvia, and Russia. And basically, uh, and, and it's the size of, it's, it's a small country. Yeah, it is. A, actually, it's a very small country. It's only 1.3 million people. But we don't see it. Uh, for us, it's not small, but it's complex, we would say. Because it makes us, uh, it makes possible that everything is nearby, actually. And you probably know everybody. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> actually, no. <laughs> But it, it's small enough for you know somebody who knows somebody. Yeah, that's is, this is the Estonian game, actually. Uh, just when you met a new Estonian, then uh, you start the game. How long does it take when you find someone someone knows? Uh, not long. Yes. Not long. <laughs> uh, in terms of your physical location, uh, not counting Russia, <laughs> you're, you're surrounded by countries that are relatively new. <laughs> not Finland, but I mean relatively new. <laughs> and... From a tourism point of view, one of the things we're talking about at the conference today um, is the double-edged sword, if you will, between development and growth and responsibility and sustainability. Mm -hmm. how, do, how do you manage that in Estonia? Uh, well, as, uh, as the main key for Estonian tourism is uh, nature, uh, we would say that um, sustainability for us is not a trend but a tradition uh, the way of living here uh, in Estonia is, has always been uh, living in a nature, uh, thinking like a nature. And actually very often we don't realize that uh, the way of living or doing business is uh, sustainable indeed. And, but you have to work at it. Yes, we have to, because um, our companies very often, tourist companies, very often they, uh, they don't, think it's important to show uh, that they are uh, responsible and they are sustainable. Uh, that's why we have uh, different support schemes and training programs for our companies uh, to, to make them show that uh, the, they are sustainable because sustainability is kind of a hygiene um, criteria for, uh, for the future. And getting tougher. And it is, yes, certainly. 
I remember when I first went to Slovenia, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and what I noticed there, right away, I couldn't escape it, is that I think half the population are beekeepers. They love keeping bees and making honey. So you, I couldn't go to anybody's house without them giving me honey. Mm -hmm. I, I came back to the United States. I thought the United States Department of Agriculture was going to arrest me because I had like nine different jars of honey from all over the country. And very, I mean, and that's how people made a living as well. They, it wasn't just a hobby. They loved their bees. Mm -hmm. What's the hobby in Estonia? What, other than travel and tourism? I would say that um, um, growing everything for your family and even your friends in your garden is our hobby. It hasn't been always our free will uh, to, to have a farmland and uh, grow vegetables and fruits because during, during Soviet occupation it was the way to survive. There was nothing uh, in shops. You you needed to to do or to grow everything uh, by yourself. There was nothing to buy. Yes, exactly. It was a deficit uh, era era in in our uh, country. Uh, but for example, right now, um, as it has always been there that uh, my parents or my aunt or someone from our family are uh, growing uh, vegetables and having a garden, then I really um, it is very important for me what I and my family eat. So it's, uh, it's a tradition what we will keep, and this is everybody actually uh, are doing more and more. And, and it's a tradition that you'll hand down to your children. Exactly, yes, because they, they see how uh, my parents are doing it in garden and how I'm doing it, uh, making a jam or, I don't know, uh, going to mushrooms in forests and so So what on. you're saying to me is that if I come over to your house, I'm having dinner. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. <laughs> We're talking to Kuli Kroner, who's the head of tourism for Estonia. More with Kuli and me as we return to Seville right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. And we're back. Ion Travel continues from Seville, Spain. We've been talking to Kuli Crowner, who's the head of tourism for Estonia, a place that most of you have never been to and maybe most of you can't point to on a map, but it's there. And uh, it's in a very interesting location. And as I said earlier, it's a manageable destination. You can visit it in addition to visiting other destinations because the distances are not that great. What's your biggest challenge? I think our biggest challenge in terms of tourism is to attract first-time visitors. Because once you are being in Estonia, then you feel that this kind of maybe a little bit peculiar country with a, maybe a, a funny lifestyles or, or too technical or too digital country. What makes it funny? Uh, maybe we have some traditions, for example, or, uh, or we like things maybe other countries think it's not very um, very nice or I don't know <laughs> but the thing is people do come what are they and, and and what's what's their what's your biggest attraction and the, and I want to ask that in context what's your most popular attraction that you have to manage in terms of responsible travel and sustainability mm -hmm. I think it's still uh, the medieval old town in Tallinn 
which is a uh, most preserved area of uh, of medieval houses and of course Estonia is not a mass tourism destination but th- in this area it is possible that during some weeks uh, in year there may be too many tourists what, uh, what are those weeks so I can know not to go uh, in the middle of July I guess in the middle of July nobody should go anywhere that's yes. when you stay home yes but yes. September that's the magic month Yes, it is. And it, especially during this year, because it was the warmest September we ever had since we started to measure uh, temperatures in Estonia. But for us, this, yes, of course, we understand this is uh, maybe a sign of a climate change and eventually it's uh, not that good. But for us, this made this September a very pleasant uh, month. So to go and visit this uh, old town, for example, and uh, yes, and as a, as a citizen of Estonia, I also uh, sometimes go with my family to old town because i have my favorite places there like like for example for me uh, when i think about uh, old town then it's definitely medieval church called nikulista and why i like it is that there is a piece of medieval art uh, made by uh, bernd notka and the name is death of dan dance of the death mm. so and every time you go there then even so it's like five years old painting you find a piece there which is so relevant today so it's amazing another thing i as we always have something new in uh, in estonia then this year we opened an um, elevator to the heaven in this uh, church explain so this is a glass elevator which you can go to the viewing uh, platform and see all the beauty of our old town, all those uh, rooftops, uh, which mostly are red, and uh, so it's a very nice view. And the the buildings have been preserved. Yes, it's a very nice museum also. Now, you mentioned Tallinn. That's where you fly into. Mm -hmm. How is airlift? Are Are more airlines coming? Uh, yes, it's uh, it's it, 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 we must must admit that we are in a periphery of Europe, so the airlines uh, you there's definitely not too many uh, direct flights, especially where you're coming outside uh, Europe. But uh, I think we have a very nice connection with Helsinki, for example, and very soon it's uh, probably going to be uh, a green corridor for maritime uh, transport for uh, uh, people and also for cargo. So it's um, uh, it would be a very nice mix uh, to to go also to Helsinki and to come to Tallinn. And as Estonia is so so. Um, uh, compact. It is no worries. You can have a city break, a spa holiday, or you can even relax in nature. So you can have it all. <laughs> Sounds like a promotion. Mm-hmm. But I get it. Based on the distances involved, easy to get to by train as well. Uh, right now it's uh, quite difficult. But, Why? Uh, Why? Be- because there is no... Uh, 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 railways um, and uh, the r- going by train is quite uh, slow. Yeah, but you can do it uh, inside Estonia very uh, well. But uh, there are no connections between countries. But soon uh, there will be Rail Baltica, uh, which will connect us to uh, other European cities. So it's doable. It is, yes. Mm-hmm. 
And during the pandemic, so many people discovered places like Estonia because it was a place they could go and breathe and not be crowded. Uh, what were the lessons you learned from the pandemic and that concept of over-tourism? Um, I think uh, we, the, 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 important, the most important thing is that we realized that this time gave us uh, a little bit uh, a, t- a time to 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 make to think about our tourist future, and we saw that many companies started to 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 think that well, I should improve my tourist services or products. And, and after, they got a chance to yes, do it. Yes, and after COVID, actually, there there was a, so many new things in the market. Kuli Kraner, the head of tourism for the country of Estonia, right here in Seville, Spain. That music means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody. We have a whole lot more coming as Ion Travel continues from Seville right after this. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg back with you as Eye on Travel continues. If you're just joining us, let me tell you where we're broadcasting from. Get out your maps, boys and girls. 37 degrees, 22 minutes north, 5 degrees, 59 minutes west. We are in Seville, Spain, attending the All World for Travel annual global summit about sustainable travel, responsible travel, and finding a path forward. Talking to a lot of world leaders in travel and thought leaders, ranging from government ministers to CEOs to researchers, policymakers, and of course, consumers as well. Uh, Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to Peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Joining me now, someone who I've known for a long time. He's a veteran in the cruise business, uh, knows about as much as anybody you can imagine. So always happy to talk to Roberto Martinoli, the senior advisor to the Royal Caribbean Group president and CEO. Roberto, welcome. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you for having me. Uh, You know, we've been talking about this for quite a while. There was a seminar on it today about, you know, sustainable travel as it relates to cruise ships. And, you know, we go back 30 years, it was an issue then, but it was all about cruise ships like polluting the water or discharging waste or oil. Now it's, it's gone beyond that to uh, sustainable practices that, first of all, redefine what the word waste is, redefine the word oil, redefine the word fuel. Um, and, you know, we've seen cruise lines already say, okay, we're not going to use single-use plastics. We've seen cruise lines saying we're not going to throw anything overboard anymore, a zero-tolerance policy where everything gets processed on the ship and stays on the ship until the ship gets to shore. Uh, we've seen cruise ships that have systems now that allow them when they come into certain ports like Alaska to, to plug, literally plug in to the, to the power grid so that they're, so they're not burning fuel, like you know leaving your car running, things like that. But now the real focus these days, as it is in aviation, is the fuel itself. Sustainable, they call it sustainable aviation fuel. Is there such a thing as sustainable cruise ship fuel? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, we are uh, all using uh, 
similar type of fuel. The, 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 the jet fuel, of course, is a lighter product, and we use uh, a product which is a little bit different, but they all come from, uh, from fossil fuels. So, and this is what is available today all over the world, and this is what the supply chain all over the world uh, makes it available. Uh, there has but been, but first but of but all... But uh, of course... In the aviation industry, we know for the last five or six years that it works. Sustainable aviation fuel works. They've tried yeah. on a number of different airlines, whether it's bio, not biodiesel, well, but, but bio. We, and yeah. we do the very same thing. Actually, yeah. we can go even further than that because not only do we have the biodiesel or the you know alternative fuel that are available that are uh, able to be burned into into the same engines or propulsion systems that we have. But we also went uh, a step forward, and we also been we are working with hydrogen. We are working with fuel cell. We are working with hybrid batteries. We are working with methanol, ammonia, uh, and uh, and uh, and many other sources of fuel. Uh, the latest uh, research and development goes to uh, carbon capture and reutilization. So you can take the car- you know you can use the uh, carbon fuel take the carbon out and put it back again. So there are a lot of new technologies that are being investigated. And I think that uh, we can safely say that uh, the cruise business has done tremendous uh, work on that. And uh, what you were mentioning about 30, 40 years ago is things of, the, of, 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 of you know, many, many years back. I, and I'll, I'll the systems story, yeah. on board today are extremely innovative. They are, I mean, I can tell you that if you come on board and see one of our... Uh, you know, like waste treatment system, you would be in- incredibly surprised. And I have seen it. You but, have. But I okay. want to go back 40 years and tell you a story. Sure. I was told by a crew member years ago on Royal Cruises. So we're mm-hmm. going back to the, to the Greek, yes, of course. Greek company. Yes. Uh, he said to me, at night, don't go out on deck wearing a white shirt. <laughs> and I said, what are I you mean, talking the, about? These are really things of the past. I, mean, I know. But I, and, and, and sure enough, one night <laughs> I went out, I was covered with driplets of oil and soot because that's when they were burning everything at night. Yeah. Those days are gone. Yeah, they are completely gone. I think, like I said, I mean, we are, uh, and in fact, we are trying to, we, we are showcasing our, our, our systems, our ships, our plants. And uh, we've been investing a lot of money in, in R&D uh, with very little help from uh, regulators and governments. I mean, to make sure that uh, we do advance and we do the best we can to reach the goal that we've given ourselves and that the, the regulators are giving us in the shortest possible time. And, uh, and there is uh, an incredible improvement. If not for anything else, think of it. I mean, fuel is a cost for us. So, I mean, if we can burn less, I mean, you know, it's a big uh, economical advantage as well. So we have many motivation. Of course, the first one is to be, I mean, good stewards of the world that we work in and our destination are our, are our asset, I mean, in our best uh, asset. So uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting to see what has been done. Well, we talked about all the different fuels that you just mentioned, right? LNG, yeah. hydrogen, yeah. Uh, ammonia, ammonia, methanol. Have, the, have any of them, uh, LNG it has, but yeah. are all the other systems working yet or no? We do have proven that we can, we can produce, I mean, we can, we, we can generate power with those uh, alternative fuel. And I think that LNG has been an, a very interesting tool because it's given us the opportunity to adapt engines to other fuel. So an LNG is uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know... It's propane. Yeah, it is, but yeah. I mean, 
It, it's also uh, helping in uh, making sure that we know how to adapt engine to burn different fuels. So when you have engines like we do have, all of us have today, that are uh, uh, capable of burning multiple fuels on the same engine, I mean, the, then the problem is where to store it and how to store it, which is a different, well, which is another interesting topic and how do you supply it. But I mean, it, it's, it's already a big step forward. So we, are, we know that we can burn different fuels, the problem is to find what is the best solution for the future that can, can, that can be available everywhere in the world because ships are going around the world, so they need to be supplied not only in one location but in many different locations. And therein lies the problem. Just like with aviation fuel, they're not making it enough in volume, yeah. so it's not affordable, even though they know it works. So it's you know six of one, half a dozen of the other. Where do you, what, what's the tipping point that's going to incentivize people to create that fuel in volume so that it can be used. Well, I, I think that uh, this is something that we need to work together with the, all the operators, uh, uh, together with the regulators, to make sure that we all push into what is the the right final decision. So, because today we are facing uh, regulation that do not have practical solutions yet. So, and of course, I mean we are investing a lot of time and money in R and D to make sure that we'll get there soon you know very soon and uh, incredible progress has been made in the meantime we have an uh, installation of fuel cell and fuel cell is another very interesting thing the problem with fuel cell is that you need to you need to you employ hydrogen and hydrogen is difficult to be transported because you of the, the very container. low flash point yeah. uh, ammonia is a, a toxic gas so we are learning on how to deal with those products in a very safe way so that we will be able to understand which one is the best. One, one of, I mean, it's not going to be only one, probably, but uh, we, we'll get there. We're talking to Roberto Martinoli, the Senior Advisor to Royal Caribbean's Group President and CEO. We're here in Seville. Stick with us when we come back. More about cruising and more about a consumer approach as well. Back with more right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here, back with you from Seville in Spain. We're here for the A World for Travel Global annual summit talking about sustainable and responsible travel and trying to forge a path forward on every form and type of travel. We've been talking to Roberto Martinoli, the senior advisor to the Royal Caribbean Group CEO and president. Roberto, you know, we define environmental challenges in different ways. We just talked about fuel. We talked about waste. Uh, We talked about materials and, and, and items that you're no longer purchasing or no longer using. But now let's shift gears because you also have to educate your consumers as to what you're doing. You know, are you communicating properly enough for people to understand the work that you're doing? I think, uh, I think we are improving and uh, I think that we definitely have an opportunity to be better communicators. Uh, I would say that in general terms to the general public, I mean, because I mean, our passengers know our product very well and, uh, you know, they spend time on board and uh, we do go through, you know, the exercise of explaining them what we are doing and the crew is always available and uh, we, we tell all the, all the story that we need to tell them. We could probably be a little more vocal in general terms because, uh, as I said before, as, a, as an industry, 
industry, we are doing incredible things that people, when they when they realize what we do, they are really very, very surprised. So we could do a better work in communicating what the cruise industry has been doing in these years, yes. It's been my experience that the cruise industry, not just your company, but the cruise industry has been sort of reactive uh, as opposed to being proactive, you know, waiting for the government to come up with solutions that in other industries, the private sector is actually leading the way. I'm not sure about that, Peter, to be honest, because if you look into our, uh, you know, like uh, to the Cruise Line International Association, which is the industry association, we do have standards that go over and above the, the laws and the regulation, and we do commit to apply to it, and we need to, every CEO of every company need to certify that uh, we are strictly following those uh, rules that we have imposed ourselves, and uh, uh, in past times, when uh, things have happened and steps needed to be taken, we've been faster than the regulators in uh, in proposing and applying uh, new procedures and new standards when when was required. So again, maybe we're not been too good in communicating it, but we are not. We are not really. Uh, we are faster than the regulators uh, in changing things in that sense. Okay, then let's shift gears then and talk about yeah. scheduling sure. and itineraries. You go back to the days of the original show, The Love Boat. Yeah. And you, you know, you maybe, I mean, even though that was a fictional show, it did mirror what the itineraries were for so many of the, of the original cruise lines. You went to Nassau and you went to Nassau. <laughs> and I think you might have also gone to Nassau. Nassau. <laughs> uh, you know, these seven day cruises and right. that was that. Um, now, lines like yours are calling on over 1,400 ports. A big, small, unknown, not just the usual suspects. So that's very cool for people who love to love to cruise because they have so much more choice. But then there are the ports themselves. Um, sometimes the ports will make the claim, and, and it's not too difficult for them to make it in certain cases, that they can't handle that many ships in the harbor on, the, on one particular day. So if you were to go to St. Thomas, I don't know what the day would be, but there are some days where you have seven ships in, right? Same thing in Nassau, same thing in, in Alaska, right? So what I do... If I'm on a cruise or if I'm scheduling a cruise, I will call ahead and to the ports that are listed on the itinerary and say, on July 27th, it says this ship's going to be in the harbor. What other ship's going to be there that day? If they come back with any more than one more, I book another cruise because it gets unwieldy. The number that these communities cannot, as much as they want the tourism and the travel industry, they cannot handle the volume. I, I, this has been a topic that has been on the table for some time, and I think, again, the cruise industry has shown the ability to take action before being imposed further regulation. And in fact, we've been sitting together with our colleagues from the other cruise lines, and we've been agreeing on making changes to our itinerary planning to make sure that in certain ports that were, I mean, almost at the limit of their capacity, that we wouldn't be going there. Uh, with that said, I would like to uh, to say that uh, uh, in in that sense, the cruise industry is probably the best partner to work with, because we can tell you precisely three years from now, in March 27, how many ships we have, where, how many people will be on board, what excursion will be taking. So it's something that you can plan very well. And if you sit down with the local operators and everything, I mean, you can make sure that everything is properly handled. Uh, different it is when you have people coming with m with many other means of transportation, with their car, with buses, with trains, planes. So this is not as easy to uh, kind of control and 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 plan properly uh, compared to cruise ships. So if you uh, if you want to uh, plan well 
the income in tourism, I mean, cruising is a great partner. Well, you know, it's, it's that and also scheduling because the traditional cruise ship model is you pull into port around 7.30 in the morning and you leave at 5 in the afternoon with people racing after the ship with all their souvenir purchases and boom, that's it. Um, there are now a number of cruise lines, including yours, that have readjusted their schedules to allow ships to, to come in when the other ships have left, like at 4 in the afternoon, and spend the night and not go out until the following evening, which has got to be better for passengers because they've got a better immersion into the culture. There's more time to spend with the people and no crowds. Yeah, again, it's very much depends on, on where you are in the world, I mean, what is available. Uh, there are certain destinations that are definitely suitable for that solution, and we do it, and, and many of our colleagues are doing the same thing. So it's, it's very much dependent on the type of destination and on the infrastructure that is available there. But at the same time, my experience has been when they do that, it's a much more valuable, remembering, uh, memorable cruise. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and, and again, there are itineraries that are very much focused on the destination, and other itineraries that are more focused on ship. We were commenting that this well, morning. Well, I, I mean, know, you know because so, you have some uh, ships in your fleet. Exactly. And if you add the number of passengers to the number of crew, you're over 8,000, and yeah. the ship is being, uh, it was built for this too, to, to, to be the destination. In a way. It is, and, and people, uh, you would be surprised to know that there is a high percentage of people that don't, they don't step on land. I mean, they stay on board the entire <laughs> Do they week. know they're on by the, the way, board? By the way, I have to tell you that this happens also on the smaller ship, on the silver sea ships. We have a fair amount of people that, uh, even if they go to very interesting and incredible destination, they like to spend the day on board hanging out, so they don't go out in every port. I mean, you know, sometimes right. they also like to spend time on board, enjoy the, the service, the food, and... Uh, okay, so this begs the question. In the Royal Caribbean fleet, how many ships? 65, 67. Okay. Yeah. Are any, is anybody living full-time on the ships now? I bet you do. Uh, well, no, there is somebody that spends a fair amount of time on the ship, like months, every year. So when you think of our loyalty program with Silver Sea as an example... Uh, I remember that when the company was like 25 years, uh, existing for 25 years, we had people that had more than 2,500 days on board. So which means that they were spending months, you know, several months every year on board well, based for on, 25 years. So I mean, that's on incredible. Based on the metrics by the United States yeah. Customs and Immigration people, their residency <laughs> is the ship. Uh, almost, yes, the ship. yeah, because if you exceed an average of 120 days, right. you, yes, exactly. I mean, so and we have, we have people that, you know, for several years uh, are exceeding 120 days on board. I wonder where they The work cruise alone is 120 days. So, right, so I if you do the work cruise and another couple of cruises, you exceed it. I mean, yeah. so, yeah. so the question is, where do they list their residents for tax purposes? <laughs> right? Well, that's... Uh, <laughs> They're passengers without a country. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is... You have to have the right ship for the right port. Yeah. You have to have the right ship for the right culture. Sure. Um, and you have to negotiate with those ports to make sure you can get your ship in at but the right time. Absolutely. But Peter, th this is uh, our top priority because, I mean, we want to make sure that people go where they can enjoy their time, they can have an incredible experience, a memorable experience. Be it uh, stay on board or stay, you know, go ashore every time, it doesn't matter. So we want to make sure that people are choosing the right product and the right destination for them. And this is our top priority. So we, uh, by definition, we want this to happen and we do spend a lot of time and resources to make sure that this is the case. And by the way, I mean, if we, we, if we are talking about it, I mean, if you look into the uh, net promoter score, which is the way that you evaluate the 
the performance of your uh, of your product. I mean, you know, we are doing extremely well, and uh, in general, the cruise business has incredibly high scores uh, because uh, because of what we do and because uh, we have those those th- those things stop in our mind. Well, or they don't stop; they keep going. I mean, you have to continue to do it. Absolutely, update. Absolutely. Of course, you also have to update and educate the ports. Yes. Otherwise, you're now at there, and now you're slaves to them. Sure. Well, I mean, it's a kind of uh, a reciprocal uh, interest relationship. I mean, you know, so you want to make sure that uh, you you get the best uh, out of it for your passengers, but you want to make sure that it's sustainable, and also the destination gets the right advantages they need to get. And we can prove that we have very long-lasting relationship with many destinations, I mean, including for an example, a good example is the Bahamas, which is like very close to us. And where, I mean, you know, we do work with them very, very well. Roberto Martinoli, the special advisor, the senior special advisor to the <laughs> president and CEO of the, of the group of the Royal Caribbean Corporation. Thanks for joining us here in Seville. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank Stick you. around, everybody. We have a whole lot more coming as Ion Travel continues from Seville right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. Peter Greenberg here, back with you as Ion Travel continues from Seville in Spain. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. As you know, because you're listening to this show, we're here at the the Global Summit of a World for Travel here in Seville. We're talking to world leaders, government heads, ministers, private sector heads, thought leaders about the changing definitions, if you will, of sustainability and responsibility as the travel industry tries to move forward in what can only be called a world of disruption and upending times. Some challenges to say the least, and that's okay because that's why everybody's here, to have those conversations and to figure it out. I'm joined now by the Global Chief Commercial Officer of Radisson, I think a, a, a brand I think you may be familiar with. Eric Denise, how are you, sir? Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so let's talk about something that's, that's, that's been going on for a while, right? There was a time pre-pandemic, right, where brands like Hilton and Marriott were opening one new hotel every 24 hours. It, it, I, I, could not, I couldn't get my arms around that, right? Now, granted, many of them were in China at that time, but still, I think, I think Marriott was once every 24 hours, and I think Hilton was once every 17 hours. I don't think you're on that pace, but you're opening a lot of hotels. We do, we do. What we, what we are opening, uh, the pace we have is 230 on a, on a yearly basis. So that's so one every day uh, and a half. Uh, correct. So we are not at 17 hours, we're more at 36. Okay, a, so lot, a lot in Asia, a lot focus in Asia and China. Mostly regional travel there. It's a regional travel, yeah. but we are also so um, uh, working closely with our shareholders, and as you know, our shareholders are Chinese, the Jingjiang Group. Uh, with, uh, with this group, we are number two in the world. In the old days, just to give everybody a sense of, of context, I remember when Radisson was owned by the Carlson family. Correct, and the Carlson and family did sell the business in 2018. That was Minnesota. Correct, <laughs> absolutely. And you had the Carlson Residor. Uh, right, uh, over in Europe. Go to market uh, yeah. name. And in fact, it was uh, a combination of the Carlson family privately owned and uh, Residor being the master franchisee for the Carlson brands and were listed in Stockholm. So now how many total hotels do you have? We have 750 hotels in operations and uh, 500 in uh, development. 
That's what we have today wow, from that, a Radisson perspective. A, that is quite a pipeline. Correct. So now that brings you to ask this. What lessons during the pandemic did you learn that you're now applying to these 500 hotels that are in development? From an environmental point of view, from a resources point of view, let's talk about the elephant in the room, the staffing point of view, mm. and then, of course, the customer point of view. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, um, we are known, uh, certainly in Europe, as being uh, one uh, sustainable company. We were uh, Swedish. It was uh, in the origin as SAS Hotel. Uh, I remember. Swedish, Swedish And by company. the way, I remember the SAS Hotel. On my first visit to Copenhagen, I stayed at the SAS Correct. Hotel. The rooms were Spartan. Hmm. There was a little, there was a single bed, or maybe in room, one room had two single beds, <laughs> right? And a small sink. And it, it, was, it, was, it was Spartan. It was efficient. But it was a little bland. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It was in 1960, yeah, the opening I don't of this. I didn't tell you to tell them what year it was. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, it was, it, was, it was built in 1960. Yeah. So it was quite revolutionary at that time. But so we are, we are very well known as a sustainable operator because the first sustainability policy is dating back 1989. So what we have learned with, with the COVID, to come back to your question, um, is um, agility, uh, really trying to develop as much as we can the technology for the guest experience. Because in fact, in the, um, in the COVID time, the touchless um, value prop was very highly, highly rated by your customer. Although I would suggest, I, I understand the technology, I understand the touchless, but anytime I go to a hotel that has kiosks in the lobby, I go to another hotel because I want a conversation. And I'm totally with you. You agree, right? But that's what we have. We don't have receptionists behind the counter anymore, but you have an host coming with an iPad and helping that's you. That's okay. If you, if you don't want to do it by yourself, we do it for you. Yeah. And, and you, have, you have the possibility to have the check-in online, as you do for airlines, before your, your stay, or you come and you, you enter the, the property. And we want to break the barrier of the counter because it's a barrier that you want to have. So that's why we put the people in front of the counter and not behind the counter. As, long as, as long as they're equipped to answer my questions. Yeah, of course. Uh, because because what, what my experience with online is, it can't tell me whether my kids can stay free. It can't tell me if you're going to throw in the $9 bottle of water or the free Wi-Fi or about parking it, it, you can't answer any of those questions. It's all about the transaction. Yeah, correct. And that's what we want to, to eliminate with technology. Good. When you prepare your, your stay, if we can, it can solve this, and then yeah. we can have a qualitative engagement with our customer, it changes your guest experience. Well, not only that, it makes you want to come back to the hotel. Correct, absolutely. Because hotels don't make money when you stay once. They make money when you stay and come back. Uh, with the second stayer. That's why uh, we are working on, the, on, the, on the, a, a tremendous loyalty program in to bring you a second time, because uh, that's, uh, that's the name of the game. Well, let's hope that your loyalty program is differently defined than the airline loyalty program. I'm totally with you. What lessons have you learned from that? The lessons I have on the airlines is that uh, I don't have a better rate, I don't have a service except the club launch, and um, I have uh, no possibility <laughs> to redeem because I'm always in blackout dates. So that's what we have, uh, that we have worked on. So you have no blackout dates on our early program, none. So you can always come in. It's not a fixed, uh, it's a fixed currency. It's uh, dynamic. So you pay less when you go in uh, Nice in south of France uh, in Jan, and you pay more in July, but it will not be closed. And then we are working a lot on, ben on, on benefits for the customer. We're talking to Eric Denit, the chief commercial officer from Radisson. When we come back... We'll talk about some other innovations and things you need to know about 
We're going to ask Eric to talk not as a chief commercial officer, but as a guest. We'll be back with more Ion Travel in Seville at the World for Travel Summit right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Ion Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. And we're back. Peter Greenberg here with you as Eye on Travel continues from Seville in Spain at the World for Travel Global Summit. We've been speaking to Eric Deneath, the Chief Commercial Officer of Radisson. I want you to take off your CCO hat for a second and put on your guest hat. When you walk into a room, it doesn't have to be at your hotels, at any hotel room, Mm -hmm. what's the one thing you see that you say, this hotel works? Or what's the one thing you see right away that goes, "Uh uh-uh, this hotel is not working? When the people are proactively coming to you, the guest engagement is critical. Or you are transactional, or you are really into guest engagement. And this is where... It's the difference between being a commodity and being a person. Correct. And this is this is a big difference in between both. And and you see directly, it, it, it starts with the first contact with with your, your bellboy, with uh, with your concierge. It starts there. And, and then you have a total different interactivity, have interaction with, with the people. See, I, I believe you 100%, but I'm going to go one step beyond. What I look for is, I try to understand the fact, which somebody had to explain to me once, that you spend more waking hours in your bathroom than every other room in the hotel. So if the bathroom works, there's a good chance the hotel is doing great. So I learned my lesson from my wife. Why? It's all about the lighting, right? And the space. Now, I know there'll be people angry at me about this, but there are search and rescue teams looking to find out all the things women carry in their bags. I have no idea what's in there, but they need space to put them in the bathroom. That's number one. Right, and you face sometimes some issues because you have no space at all no in the space. bathroom. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the real killer for them, less than for me, or more than for me, and that's light. Yeah, if there's not enough light for the makeup and enough to see yourself, they're out of there. And there's a hotel that I know in London that actually has has fun with this. It's called the Goring. It's a family hotel in London, and they have a room. They have a, a wooden panel next to the bed, and one in the bathroom. It has four different buttons. The first one is Bright, medium, low, and ooh. Night. And ooh. <laughs> That's O-O-H, right? So at least the guest is in control. Correct. I don't want to be trapped by a 40-watt bulb. Give me a 200-watt bulb with a, with a dimmer switch, I'll set the mood. Because if the hotel puts me in a room with no light, I'm already, I got a mood all right. It's a bad mood. Because people don't change their lifestyle when they change their location, right? Okay. They want to sit up in bed and use the bed as the office. They want to have their laptop in the bed or they want to read. God forbid they want to read something or see something. You can't be you know, looking for flashlights and floodlights. The good news is that we are partnering since now uh, one year with Philips just to work with us yeah. on the lighting of the rooms because the problem is the lighting of the room is very static as you yeah, said you yeah. have a reading lamp you have two lamps on the night table and that's it and that's it but so, you know it's also very expensive for you as well you have to find an efficient use of light that's not going to cost you too much money but at the same time doesn't require me to, to have a guide dog hmm? you know i mean seriously no absolutely yeah but the, the, the fact that you that we need to transition to led also sustainability well, we do, we've uh, done that driven. in the u.s absolutely yeah. and this is this is critical then then you, when you when you rethink it then we said let's let's take let's take a light specialist expert 
with us and explain us or do we need to, to work on it? I and hope you'll agree with me on this. I'm convinced that the people who built airports have never flown. And I'm convinced that the people who build hotels have never slept in one. That's not correct. I know that, but I believe that. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> and I the reason imagine. why I believe it is I see what they miss in the rooms. The, the problem is then when you give too much freedom to architects, they are designing something tremendously nice. But it doesn't work for you. Absolutely. It's not operational. Though. So that's right. why the importance of the team, operational team, when we have designed the brands, when, when we design a new brand, we are, we are in the meeting room with six or seven different departments. Not only the technical guys, and everybody not only in. the branding, also the operational guys, because otherwise you don't get there. See, to me, it's not about square footage, it's about functionality. Totally so for right. me, I, the smallest room I've ever had was my favorite room. Hmm? You know why? I didn't forget anything in the room. <laughs> But there's another thing. Because the, the more space you have, the more you start leaving things around, right? But the other reason was this. The light was great. The water pressure in the shower was stupendous, right? And Good I remember, pillows, uh, can you imagine? Good absolutely. Pillows, yeah. Now, I had, to get, I had to go out of the room to change my mind because it was so small. But the bottom line was, it's the room I remember, and I'll go back to there every time because it all worked. Absolutely. Well, and, and when you know, when you have your footprint, a small one, then you need to try to work on the eight. Because if you take a 40 or 50 centimeter more than eight, they give you two different volume. It's a totally guess difference. It totally different. It goes into the preparation. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes... And since you're building new hotels, you have, that, you have that option now. Yeah, because, you know, in the, in the past we said yeah, we need to have uh, for four star, uh, 24 square meter, for five star, 32 square meter. It's not about that. This, this, this is over. This is not the, the way it, it yeah. is. It's it different. You, you, you tackle differently. Give me a closet with great water pressure and, uh, and lighting that works. I'm a happy guy. Our customer says always, give, you, give us a good night's sleep, meaning good, meat, good mattress, good pillows, a good shower, and a breakfast, and I'm happy. And don't forget the light. Absolutely. Ah, okay. this, is the one, this is the one that's not conscious, because, but he will complain because it's not good. But if it's good, he will not mention it. Exactly. Yeah, it's what they don't mention you have to worry about. Absolutely. Eric Denith, the Chief Commercial Officer of Radisson Hotels. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. And, Thank and you we, had we had some fun in Seville. Absolutely, we have. We do. We'll be back with more as Ion Travel continues right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. And we're back. Peter Greenberg here with you in Seville at A World for Travel. Of course, uh, happy to talk to you at any time. You know how to do that. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. This being our last show for 2023 as we get ready to welcome in 2024. Of course, I'm always reminded on a day like this about growing up in terms of New Year's Eve. I remember when I was a kid, I used to beg to stay up late. Didn't you? Now... I'm forced to. <laughs> that's that's the beauty of uh, getting older. But I also happen to think getting wiser. And what did I do on New Year's Eve when I was allowed to stay up late? My mother used to have a collection of Revere wear. Does anybody remember that? The, the copper bottom pots and pans? 
And so at about five minutes of midnight, I was allowed to go into the kitchen, get a big soup ladle spoon, open up our window in the apartment in New York, and wait to hear that the ball had dropped at Times Square, and Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians have been playing at the Waldorf Astoria Ballroom, and as they sang Old Lang Syne, I got to pound the you-know-what out of those pans and make as much noise as I could, and then I went to bed. So here we are many, many years later. We're approaching another New Year's Eve. I got news for you guys. I still have the Revere wear, and I might just go to the window. <laughs> but again, I'm forced to stay up late now. I, I resent it. <laughs> but I do wish everybody a happy new year. And in that respect, let's talk about what can be happening in 2024 if people get sensible and practice some intelligence. You know, in 2023, we saw the reports about all the near misses in the air and on the ground. They should actually be called near collisions, but that's the term, near misses. And they were way up. My guess is that they really weren't way up. They were just being reported more. And the FAA then put together a committee to study it. Guys, there's not much to study. We know why it's happening. It's happening because the FAA is, is at 85% or below their staff threshold numbers at major air traffic control centers. And you know what? They can't handle the load. You know, it's the one job where you do not want anybody working overtime, Right? Uh, so what has the FAA now done? They've established another committee to address air traffic controller fatigue. Guys, it's a simple solution. Work eight hours and go home. No overtime. It's a stressful enough job as it is. And that's what we have to deal with here. What are the numbers telling us and how can we address it? We can't address it by adding more flights. That's exactly what we shouldn't be doing. We can't address it by asking the airlines to just slow down their or cancel their service. That serves nobody. We have to start with intelligent scheduling to begin with and bring in the pipeline to hire new air traffic controllers at a much faster rate. Now, when I say faster rate, that doesn't mean that when you hire a new air traffic controller, they go right to the board and work the flights. Uh-uh. That is never going to happen. It never, it never has happened. It's a big, steep learning curve where a new air traffic controller has to sit at the side of a veteran air traffic controller for at least two years working that, those screens together before they'll ever let that new guy or new woman work the screen by themselves. So even if we fix the problem by hiring new people, which the Department of Transportation says they're doing, we're still at least two years away from fixing that problem when at the same time, airlines are adding more flights. There's something wrong there, and let's hope that we, we can fix it. We don't need a committee to figure out if it's raining. It's raining. We don't need a committee to find out if it's snowing. It's snowing. We need, a, we need a committee to figure out what to do when it rains, not if it rains, and what to do when it snows, not if it snows, and what to do when airlines don't schedule properly. One of my biggest pet peeves is scheduling. There's not a runway in the world, whether you're in Miami or Mumbai, that can handle any more than 23 takeoffs in any one hour, given the appropriate you know, plane separation you have to have between takeoffs. So why are the airlines allowed to schedule 40 departures at 8 o'clock in the morning? It makes absolutely no sense. Now, I failed math in school, but even I can figure that out. So as we end 2023, let's address that. We don't need a committee. It's basic arithmetic. And the airports need to weigh in. It's not just an FAA issue. It's not just a DOT issue. The airports themselves know what their capacities are. They should be able to tell all their airlines that fly there, here's the situation, guys. 
at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, whatever hour you want to go, the maximum number of takeoffs we can allow on any one runway is 23. So either you guys figure out how you want to divvy up your schedule slots, or we'll do it for you in a random lottery, which will be equitable and fair, and then everybody knows what they need to do. And if you miss that slot, you go into a penalty box. And that penalty box is maybe we'll hold open three departures in every hour for the airlines that couldn't make their departure time. And on it goes. A much more sensible way to do it than everybody saying we're all leaving at 8 o'clock in the morning and everybody knowing it's a lie. Right? Isn't that simple? It is. So as we close out 2023, I have to thank a couple of people. First and foremost, you, my listeners, for staying with us as we do our show from a different location in the world every single week. That's 52 separate shows from 52 separate locations. We love doing it. We hope you love listening to it. And we certainly love hearing from you, hearing your your goals, your happiness, your sadness, your problems, and also, hopefully, ways to fix it. And, of course, my thanks to our producer, Amanda Morris, for Anthony Protus-Chung, for Jeff Ryder doing all the board work back in Connecticut, and, of course, once again... Here's wishing everybody a happy new year. Get your pots and pans ready. I'll be banging them. And of course, I'll see you next week as Ion Travel continues from another location somewhere around the world. We're saying bye from Seville, but we'll see you next year, which is in just a couple of days. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.